Good morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Ortman coming to you live from the Dream Imaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. super early morning wake-up call in all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in this morning. Um, yesterday on the show, we, we had an interview and we were talking about different aspects of U.S. soccer, things that needed its change. And we were looking at diversity, inclusion. Um, and one of the things that our guest, Ahmet Gouverneur, was uh, referring to was the the council structure here in American soccer and and really the, the separation of the councils. They're not in alignment to work with each other. And I thought it would be good to take uh, the intro to today's show and the next few days of the show to talk through why that is, what is actually going on. So today we're going to talk about the youth council for just a minute as we open the show and really dig into what is going on, why we have some of the issues that we are having when you look at u.s soccer and we look at the the structure uh, there's a lot of things that are that are wrong about the structure and when i use the word wrong what i mean is from a functioning standpoint for serving the purposes of its mission its mission is to administer the game to grow the game in all its forms and to make it the preeminent sport in america well when you have your council set up the way they are it limits your ability to do that you keep yourself from doing that and the 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 federation for decades this is not a month this is not days weeks this is not a pandemic issue this is a years upon years decades upon decades has had very weak leadership when it comes to bold vision unifying vision that brings people together and in its place you have create you have what what has been created is this system of silos and uh, the the word that U.S. soccer use it uses is are these councils now councils in and of themselves aren't bad but the way these are structured it, it sows seeds of discord it does not create unity it breaks up unity it pits organizations against one another not on the field where it should be but in in the federate within the federation in terms of off the field uh sometimes even into the courtrooms and and that's where there's a problem and so today we're going to dig into the youth council as we open up the show and uh just to give you an idea of u.s soccer and and its youth council the youth council is not a part of the federation where they they handle youth soccer. Now it is, but it isn't. And here's what I mean. Um, you may be under the impression that U.S. soccer is is the the governing body for the sport in this country, and on paper you would be correct, except that they have outsourced that responsibility. And instead of them sanctioning and running youth programming and youth soccer in this country, they've outsourced it to other organizations. And within the structure of U.S. soccer, what they have done is they've created these U.S. soccer members, and and some of these are sanctioning members. And so basically what they do is they confer upon these organizations. Some of them you may have heard of, U.S. Youth Soccer. That is not the U.S. Soccer Federation. Federation working um, in in U.S. youth soccer. It's a completely separate organization. It is not governed by U.S. soccer. It gets its permission to govern from U.S. soccer, but U.S. soccer is not managing the day-to-day, the operations, the programming of USYS. That is a separate 501c3. It's a separate organization. Um you have U.S. Club Soccer, another organization that runs its own programming. AYSO, SAY, U-Triple-S-A. There, there are a, an alphabet soup of organizations 
that run youth soccer programming that are able to to get sanctioning privileges from the federation to run their own programming. So you have multiple organizations and they're all operating um, independently of one another, not in cooperation with one another, not in conjunction with one another, not in harmony or unity with one another, but they run competing programming. Well, U.S. soccer not, has not only abdicated that responsibility, and a responsibility I think they, they should have taken on themselves like every other country in the world and, and utilized local offices of the federation, i.e. the state associations, to do this. And, and since they didn't do it, they have outsourced the youth game to these organizations. Now, what is their mission? Their mission is to run programming to do what? To keep them in business, to make their leaders money. Their job is not to prepare professional players. Their job is not to prepare college players. Their job is to make themselves money. To run a, a soccer organization so that they can continue to run a soccer organization. Its mission is not to work for the betterment of all players in this country. It's to get people into their programming and funneled up in their system. Now, what has also happened from the Federation when it comes to the Youth Council specifically is U.S. soccer has not only gone hands-off and, and stepped away, abdicated their responsibility in this space, they have also gone one step further, and they have not only not sanctioned and not run programming, but they've also not set up standards. They've not set forth a system that these organizations should be abiding by, running by, operating by. Therefore, you have U.S. club soccer and and their ECNL program that goes around marketing itself as the as the best opportunity for you to play soccer in this country as a youth player. And then you have U.S. youth soccer running their programming, proclaiming that they have the best, uh, you know, programming and opportunities for your son or daughter and so on and so forth through the rest of the alphabet soup. They all run their marketing and talk about things in the way that they talk about them, thinking that they're doing a good job for U.S. soccer, but they're actually trying to do a good job for themselves, for their organization. I've talked to people throughout the game. I've I've seen this up close. I've been to AGMs and and I've observed so much. Had so many conversations on and off the air. And we see it over and over again. Dysfunction, disharmony, clashes, unwillingness to work together. The bottom line is, is that in the youth soccer space, there should be a structure. And that structure should be very similar to what you would experience on the adult side, which we will get to tomorrow. And in that youth structure, you should have local play. You should have regional play. And it should be layered based on competitive merit what you do on the field so you should have multiple tiers within age groups and let teams find their level on their own i've seen clubs who have had two teams that are really good but one is forced to play in a lower league let both of them play let them prove it on the field Instead of traveling past an organization, a club, because they play with U.S. club soccer and you play with U with U.S. youth soccer, this is one of the issues. We create unnecessary travel because 
one organization is playing with this programming and another organization is playing with this programming and we're not coming together. And because we're not working together, we're not coming together, we're causing way more issues than we need to. And that is the the big biggest issue within the youth soccer space. The youth council, instead of being made up of clubs who are operating in the youth space, it's made up by state associations, U.S. Youth Soccer, AYSO, and U.S. Club Soccer, all who are running their own programming, but not working for the kids. They're not working for U.S. Soccer's mission statement. If we really are serious about getting soccer fixed in this country in a system properly aligned in this country, we've got to stop getting distracted by all of this alphabet soup of this, that, and the other. And we've got to come together. We've got to work together. We've got to stop thinking that if we run this super excellent elite world-class academy program, and every other adjective that you can think of to throw on to to a status and a marketing pitch. And we've got to get down to the basics. That's what we're missing. We have all this fluff and not the right stuff underneath. That is getting clubs playing locally, playing regionally based on competitive merit. The rest will begin to take care of itself. We'll lower travel fees, we'll lower costs, and I guarantee you there will be a lot of clubs and coaches that will be found out. They can't hide behind a label. They'll have to prove it on the field. Our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G Brand.com. They are uh, the makers of really cool products. And if you haven't checked them out re- uh, recently, you should check them out today at ducticbrand.com. Use promo code DWSHOW. You'll get 10% off of that order. We'll be right back with Serenity Leesman right after this. Welcome back into the show. Thanks for tuning in today. We are pleased to be joined by Serenity Leesman. She is a contributor with Vendetta Sports on to talk about a recent article um, looking at some of the issues facing American soccer. Serenity, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for being on. Uh, you and I had a chance to talk in advance of you uh, publishing your article and uh, had a little bit of a conversation 
um, you know, about different things uh, that I see around the sport and that you see around the sport. And I thought it would be great to, uh, now that you've got your article published, to, to kind of talk about it on the show. Uh, and, and some of the things that, uh, that we discussed and that you covered in the article, I, I feel like are really important issues facing American soccer. Um, you know, you talked about at the top of your article, uh, quote, a, a, there are, is a lot of current problems with American soccer right now. I am not talking about the U.S. Women's National Team's court case getting denied, but rather the fundamental problems of how soccer is set up in the United States. Um, and I think that is, is, is an absolute, um, you know, if, if you were to look at issues facing American soccer, we could get into specifics, and I'm sure we will here over the, the course of the next few minutes about specific issues facing American soccer. But the idea that the, the big idea, the big picture, the structure uh, level of the sport is fundamentally flawed um, is an important point that I don't think enough people, re, they, they feel it. You know, parents feel it sometimes. Coaches feel it sometimes, but they don't really know what they're feeling. They think, oh, I didn't get this chance, right? You know, and they zero in on that specific moment, not realizing it's actually um, a, a bigger, a part of a bigger issue, as you point out. Uh, the first thing that you, that you kind of um, went into in your article is cost, the cost to put your kids through soccer. T tell me a little bit about your, your thinking, your experience, what shaped um, your thought process around the cost and, and how we do soccer in this country. Yeah, so when I originally started, I was doing rec, which I didn't know the specific cost of that. But when I got into competitive and I did that for about three years, my parents are spending at least 200 a season. And that's not including any travel costs. And with the team, because where I'm from in Nevada, we don't get as much competition because we're not in Las Vegas, we're in Reno. And so what happens is that we go to North California to do tournaments. So we're going over there every weekend, spending money on hotels, spending money on food and just absolutely everything so it's not just the cost to have kids play but it's also the travel expenses that go with it and you're not even talking about the equipment so getting you know new cleats every season because kids grow like crazy or even getting them new shin guards it's like the amount that you have to put into it is insane so if you don't have the financial ability to do that then your kids most likely not going to keep playing in in terms of your personal experience did you see um or or know of of people that basically just got priced out along the way they just you know they couldn't keep affording it or maybe never got into it because they were just like i i can't i, I can't do that i can't travel every weekend i can't you know, pay that kind of price. Did you, did you see any of that up close um, in, in your playing and uh, coming up through the system? Um, personally, when I was doing competitive, there was definitely some weekends where girls on my team just couldn't go. Um, a lot of times we did try to carpool with each other or even share hotel rooms. So then that way we weren't spending as much money. But even then there, there were girls that couldn't come on specific weekends. And even now with you know, my youngest brother, he plays and he's had, you know, kids on his team that hasn't been able to do that either. So it's not just a thing that happened a while ago. It's still occurring. Yeah, it, it is that when we talk about pay to play soccer and we talk a lot about that on on this show, um, we we talk about it, I, I think, from from a big picture, like, you know, the pe people are paying all these fees we don't necessarily always break down where, where does the money go, right? There's billions in youth sports being spent every year. It's, it's a massive industry. People don't realize how big it is, but that money goes in, in a, in a variety of places. And, and a lot of that is directly um, attributed to U S soccer's system, um, which, which basically, um, makes that engine work right because of the way they structure competitions 
now you you've got added expenses like you mentioned hotel travel gas you know the food out of town food etc uh a, a hidden cost that i don't think um people realize when they're first getting into this as well as is time off of work you know and and parents having to um you know make uh, sacrifices there or changes of schedules there to accommodate uh, you know, the, the travel or, uh, training, you know, and, and different, different aspects there. So equipment, obviously jerseys, obviously league fees, club fees, you know, you, those are things you see when, you know, when a club sends out a, an invitation, Hey, play with the play with us this season. Here are your fees. What, mm-hmm. what you don't see when you, pay that, you know, $500 bill or $1,000 bill, $2,000 bill, whatever the, whatever the case is, when you're in that kind of travel world, is that it, it's almost like fine print, but it's invisible ink at the bottom of the page. It's like, yeah, yeah you, you pay the 500. However, you're going to pay another grand in travel costs or two grand in travel costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it is, it is a steep price. Um, and it's certainly not a way if we are, you know, if, if, if our federation and the, and the leaders in our sport are wanting more kids to play and play for a longer amount of time, meaning, you know, as they get older, um, we've got to address costs. We've got to reduce the cost, which is a, which is a structural issue, um, and, and it's, it's, it's certainly not something that you can, um, you know, just dismiss. It, it's, it's a real cost that families can't get around uh, and, uh, and, a, and a real cost that adds up, even if it is in that kind of invisible, uh, you know, um, small, you know, subsection of your agreement to play with the clubs. Like, Oh, by the way, we're going to, we're going to make, take you to a lot of places. It's going to cost you a lot of money. Like there's no disclosure there, right. When you get in. And, uh, and so that, that's a big thing. Another thing that to me contributes to that is, is another point you brought up, which is lack of education. Um, you know, how, how has this lack of education as you see it affected, um, American soccer in, in our entire structure and system? Um, The biggest point for me is the coaching aspect of this. So, and I've had conversations with my dad about this. So he had, you know, looking back on it, he wished that he would have switched me to maybe a different team or had, or talked to my coach more because he didn't really see me progressing as much as I maybe should have, or the way that my dad thought would be better for me, but he didn't really know how to address that. And now with my younger brother, you know, he's had the experience, so he knows how to talk about this stuff. But parents who are doing this first time, they're not going to know. And I have been coaching with a sports pro or a soccer program called Soccer Sprouts. And we really just do like fundamental basics. But I have parents coming up to me asking, okay, well, is this club good? What about these coaches? And it's, they know that I've played in this area before, but they have no idea like any type of coaching that's going to help them, help their kids develop better. They have no idea really how the system works at all. So they have to come, you know, to me. And that's just, that's just me seeing that these parents aren't actually getting educated on how our system actually works. So they don't know anything, which means that they're getting blindsided by things like costs. Yeah. So um, when Eric Winaldo was running for president of us soccer, he, he turned to me one time when we were out traveling on during this campaign. And he, he said, he said the biggest area that us soccer could make a difference right now is parent education. And I was like, what? I mean, we've got a lot of issues. And he's like, he said, I'm, I'm telling you, like they're in, they're in areas they shouldn't be They're They're mismanaging other areas that they should manage better, but the area they've completely vacated in and not done anything to is parent education. Parents don't know what they don't know. They don't know where to turn. There is no guide for them, you know, and, and, uh, and, and your experience is highlighting that yet again. 
there that a lot of people just they don't know i've had these conversations with parents um you know a few months ago i, w- I was uh, out at dinner and i had several um you know parents that their kids play soccer and they were asking me questions and i was having to sit down and kind of educate them on okay well here is the u.s youth soccer landscape right and there's this sanctioning organization and this different sanctioning organization and there's these tournaments and there's this you know and, and they're like what <laughs> you know like I, I didn't even know all this so you know it, it's when we, when we talk about pathways for players and pathways for coaches and different things like that one of the things when it comes to, to this lack of education is parents don't even know that there is a pathway or what a pathway might look like that there's actually multiple pathways in American soccer because we haven't clearly defined anything. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and a lot, you know, I, I remember a conversation recently with, with a, a dad who is, you know, was like, I don't even know what I'm paying for. And, and, and it's just one of those cycles where you just, every kind of new parent, is kind of like thrown into the wild. Hey, figure it out, you know, and, and, uh, and, and they don't know, uh, what they don't know. And, and ultimately I think where it really affects us and you pointed this out is our culture. How is that lack of education in, in your view, um, shaped or hurt our ability to really build a robust footballing, you know, soccer culture? Well, it's, like we have talked about this, you know, soccer is not embedded into our culture like football is. You know, we don't have, for football, you can go over to somebody's house to do Super Bowl Sunday. And that's like, that's something of American culture. Here we don't have that for soccer. Like if you ask people, they probably would have said, yeah, I played soccer when I was younger, but I didn't really stick with it. And so they don't have any real connection to it. And I think that really a lot of people just flock to sports because you're making all of these connections with people that you might not have otherwise. And, you know, in Europe, what are they doing when a soccer game's on? They're going to the local pub and they're really just building a community out of it. But that's, we don't have that here. And so we're missing out on a huge community opportunity. Yeah, that that shared community is is so big, right? And and celebrating, um, you know, the the sport and and it's you, you see a little bit in pockets, like in places around the country, but it's not widespread. Mm-hmm. And and I actually am of the belief, that maybe just you know, maybe I'm just too optimistic here, but I'm of the belief that it it would build and spread and grow really quickly. Um, in, in a proper structure that I think that families who are involved right now would be even more, um, you know, quick to, to really buy into soccer culture. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, would we have a lot of like newbies to the, to that, to that soccer culture, uh, aspect, like they're beyond just being the spectator for their child. Yeah. But I think over time it would, it, that would actually, um, grow really quickly. I mean, it wasn't that long ago um, that the NBA finals were tape delayed. And, and everybody now is like, what? Like, you know, tape delayed. What is tape, right? That's the first question. What is tape? Um, but, you know, it, it, was, it was not even live and in prime time. And then now we obviously, you couldn't imagine not having the NBA and their finals and even their regular season matches uh, games on, on television. Um, and, and, and that's grown over the the last few decades. I I think soccer would be similar in that way that I think it could have a massive foothold in this country in very short order in the grand scheme of things. If, uh, you know, if the culture was, uh, able to, to really grow and spread. And part of that's the education piece you talked about. Uh, part of that is the structure, um, which leads me to this, which is, the structure that right now we we experience is is clubs get their revenue uh, in the youth landscape primarily from families in the in the adult amateur landscape 
they're, they're primarily getting their funding either from their, you know, investor owners or from selling uh, of some tickets. Uh, but they are having to pay to get into the leagues they want to play, just like the youth teams do. And even at our professional levels, it's the same thing. It's a pay to play in that league, whether it's major league soccer, whether it's NISA, whether it's the USL, um, every league we look at is a pay to play entrance. And, and it's primarily at the adult amateur and professional levels. All the revenue comes from match days. There's very little other revenue on the youth side. It's primarily coming from families. How in, in your kind of research and looking at this issue, how, how has uh, that compared to what you've seen overseas and how has that had an impact on, on the sport here in America? Um, I think it's pretty sad that we don't give as much opportunity to kids that aren't, you know, that can't financially have it without, you know, the European system or basically the rest of the world, we wouldn't get, you know, the Messi's or the Pele's or any of that. So we're ris really just stripping these kids of opportunity and they may be really, really talented, but if they don't have the money, then they're not going to get farther. And it's really sad because I've seen this with my coaching. There are kids that I can see that really just need a place to almost call home. And so they come each week with the same kids, with the same coaches, and you're really connecting with everybody there. And their home lives may not be super, super fantastic. So when they're coming and playing soccer, it's almost like they just get to forget all of that but I've seen kids fall out of the program because they may not be able to financially stay in it. And it's just really sad that they don't get the opportunity to stay with that community or that home that they're building. Yeah. I, I think that that point is so good. And to build on that, one of the things that, that I've seen with some of these kids is they may be good and clubs will often, you know, taunt, uh, or, or, or say, not taunt, it's the wrong word, but to, to proclaim that we, we give out scholarships. Well, that is, is kind of a, a Band-Aid that might help, you know, a kid here or there. But structurally, what happens when you've got 12, 13, 14 kids whose families are paying, then you've got one kid who's pretty good, but he can't afford it. Do the rest of those families w want that kid on the team, taking away their kids playing time when they're paying all the money and this kid's not paying anything. It builds these social dynamics unnecessarily into, you know, the setup and it creates pressures on coaches. How do I handle that? How do I handle the playing time? I, I know this kid uh, isn't, isn't able to pay what, what the rest of my players are able to pay, but they're really good. And they, you know, on their own merit, they deserve playing time, but I'm staring across the field at this, you know, row of uh, lawn chairs and beach chairs. And I see all these parents who have paid the funds that pay me pay my paycheck. And, uh, and I've got to take, you know, some of their kids playing time away to give, to a, to a scholarship kid. Right. And so, you know, it's easy to kind of dismiss that aspect and, and just be like, well, you know, clubs can give scholarships and that takes care of that. No, it doesn't. There, there are other things that, that are part of it. And, and what I've found, I, I used to, to, to run a non pay to play club. So it was a free to play club sponsors and, and, and my company, basically funded everything and and we didn't charge anybody anything and and for that there was a couple things that we had to face as a, as a reality number one is uh if we're if the if the families aren't paying obviously we knew where we had to go to get revenue number two we had to be really good at controlling our cost so our all of our coaches were volunteers and you know we tried to be really smart about how we spent where we spent our money um, and, and the other thing that we had to take into account is that we could only offer this program to a select number of kids because every kid to us was an expense, you know, and every kid in a pay to play program is an income. 
And yeah. so it was completely opposite. So we couldn't have like 4 million kids running around. We, we, our squad was basically 25 kids. It was, a, it was a small program. But one of the hidden things that we, you know, going back to what we talked about a few minutes ago about the, the, the costs that families pay, um, one of the hidden things that I didn't realize before I got into that project is how much those kids who can afford to play also have other issues that keep them from playing. For example, parents' work schedules, transportation. And I'm not talking about getting them from Nevada to Northern California for a tournament. I'm talking about getting them from their house to the soccer field to train on Tuesday night mm -hmm. um, and getting them back home. Um, you know, making sure for some of them, making sure they're doing their homework and that they're, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it was a big like holistic thing. And, um, and, and so it, it, it's a, it's a much bigger issue than just a scholarship. And, you know, it, it, it goes beyond, there, there's just more nuance to that issue and to reduce it to, Hey, will we just, We'll, we'll charge enough money to 14 of the parents so that the 15th kid can go play on a scholarship that that doesn't fix everything that might make you feel good and it might be helpful to that kid and it might work out in that situation but I don't think it's enough of mm -hmm. a fix um, in that area one of the other areas that we don't see that affects this revenue aspect is the lack of sporting merit in this country right? That, that your bigger clubs are not driving revenues at a big enough level um, that can filter down through the system, through those other revenue streams, whether that's television money that, that gets distributed down, whether that's solidarity payments and training compensation that trickles down, whether that's the, the player transfer market, where you know a, a smaller club in in Reno develops a player and they sell them to a bigger club in LA. Now all of a sudden we just got you know a hundred grand, two hundred grand to run our program. Um, you know that that's another aspect that we don't uh, see in this country. Um, and and then obviously the commercial revenues, the sponsor, the big the big sponsorship deals are not flowing down e either. So when we don't have you know an FC Barcelona, Liverpool. Um, you know, Bayern Munich type of mega big, huge clubs that are in, in, in a system that is producing massive amounts of revenues that then is able to get shared uh, throughout the pyramid. Um, we, we are reduced to finding revenue in other places, which is what we see in the youth space. How, mm -hmm. how have you seen that lack of multiple tiered sporting merit system really affect um, you know, the American soccer landscape in your research for this article? Um, well, we were talking about this. People weren't really getting as engaged with soccer, maybe because they think it's boring or whatever. I've heard that excuse a lot. Um, but just if we could actually have relegation, I think that would be much more competitive. And like I said in my article, I think one of the first steps would be actually making sure that we have more teams. So we have, what, 26 in MLS? That's for a whole entire, our, our country, which is huge. So that's obviously not enough. And so if I'm thinking if we're connecting at least MLS and let's say USL, we get some more teams. We were talking, what, 80 teams? So you get all of the people who have local pride engaged, whether they are a soccer fan or not, because people have pride for their city. And so they're going to get behind that. And if they have, let's say my, my USL team, Reno 1868, if they had a chance to, you know, go play in league one, then we would all be standing behind that. And the city would be erupting with like, just excitement. And so you'd get a lot more community engagement if we could get that going. Yeah, that community pride thing is so big. I mean, we see it, um, you know, it, at the college level, like you've got your college that you identify with or that you root for, et cetera, in college sports. 
But then like you get down to the high school level and it, to me, that's where it gets really kind of this visceral feeling like that's my high school and we're mm -hmm. playing them. Right. And it, and, and there's that, like it, you could not care at all about the sport, but it's like, I, I want my school to do well. Like there, there's a pride in that, you know, granular level, um, local level uh, attachment, emotional attachment and feeling to your, to your high school. And, and I, and I feel like that's what we're missing, you know, in the club soccer space, we're missing um, that. And, and there's so many gaps and it's, and it's not just, you know, some will say, well, yeah, we've got a, a couple dozen playing in major league soccer. We've got uh, about three dozen playing in the USL championship, um, you know, and, and we're adding more, we're getting there. I'm like, bro, th this country's huge. And like the city of New York could have like, 20 of these things like that are, that are like legit, like huge clubs just in New York. I mean, look at London and how many clubs are in the premier league. Now I'm not talking about the league system that they, they're, you know, London based clubs all throughout the pyramid in England, but just in the premier league, the arsenals, the Chelsea's, the West Ham's Tottenham, uh, crystal palace. I mean, all, all clubs, that are, you know, right there in London and, and there are more in that kind of surrounding area to, to think that Los Angeles, you know, and San Diego and San Francisco and, and, you know, New York and Chicago and Miami, and I'm naming some really big cities in, in the global landscape of things that could easily support not just one or two, but multiple bona fide really solid big clubs. Now there might be one or two that are a mega club in a market, but mm -hmm. that's going to be, you know, that would be a situation where they've earned that, right? They've built it themselves. Maybe they they've gone out and, 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 and sought investment and, and got it to a point to where it could dominate. Like one area that, that doesn't get talked about a lot when we look at uh, American soccer and, you know, promotion relegation and, you know, New York and, Los Angeles and Chicago could support easily support multiple teams. One area that never gets talked about is Atlanta. Atlanta is one of the fastest growing areas in this country. And the way it's laid out, if you, if you've never been there, it, it's not like super concentrated into one geographic little spot called Atlanta. It's like this giant blob, this ring that is just growing. Um, they're, they're, they're having conversations now because decades ago, uh, the, the two, there's, there's three main interstates that kind of intersect through Atlanta, 85, 75, and 20. And, uh, they, they built this ring around the city called 285. And, and it was kind of, it created this donut right around the city of Atlanta. And it gave people access to kind of get around East, West and, alleviate some downtown traffic there and what they're going back and, and looking at now is like we think we're gonna have to build a bigger ring like we're gonna have to have a second ring outside of 285 that that city everybody knows Atlanta United right there in downtown you know Arthur Blank's team but if you if you've been to Atlanta if you know people from Atlanta you know you would know that that area that city is over six million people and, and growing the idea that Atlanta couldn't on its own have two or three or four like bona fide legitimate clubs. And, and we've only talked about what a half a dozen cities, yeah. you know? So um, the, the potential is huge. If, if we are allowing entrance based on sporting merit, which ultimately does what you pointed out in your article, which is connectivity, which is so important I want to feel connected to my team, my city, my club. And my, in order to do that, my club has to be connected to other clubs in other cities and other leagues based on what they do on the field, not just pay-to-play entrance into those leagues. So I'm curious, um, looking at the landscape of, of American soccer and, and looking at the sporting merit piece, looking at connection, how, how do you see um, the kind of if, – if it was a before and after, right? So if we were connected versus the, the unconnected, 
how would you see that when you're when you're looking at this issue how would you see that if we were connected how would how do you think communities would feel if they were fully connected i think it'd be fantastic because if we are able to create a lot more teams then think about how many more rivalries you're going to have and how popular are rivalry games you know everybody looks forward to those and you would just feel more prideful for your team and also another thing that i think rele relegation would do is that it would make the teams focus more on developing skills of their players which i personally have seen especially at least like in my high school the boys team all they did was run they would barely touch the ball which was crazy to me which I get the fitness aspect. Yes, you want your, t your team to be you know, fit, but they wouldn't ever touch the ball. And I think what coaches, well, I've seen this, where coaches are focusing more on, hey, I get this much amount of money if I you know, get the team here, but they completely forget to look at each individual player and work with them to develop skills. So if we had relegation, I think these teams would be focusing more on improving their players' skills and actually creating a better game. So then that way they may go from league two to league one. And I think developing skills is probably one of the most important aspects of this game because you're just always learning. So I think it would be fantastic if we could actually get that to happen rather than right now where it's just more focused on money. And I think we could be focusing more on developing skills. Yeah, that you, that's such a good point. Developing the field, what's on the field, not just the bank accounts off the field is so good. The, the last kind of area that you, you zeroed in on is, is one I want to zero in as, as, as uh, we're uh, coming towards the end here of our interview, which is creating stories. Uh, I think it's such a big thing, like covering the sport, looking at different areas uh, beyond Major League Soccer, beyond the NWSL in American soccer. Um, one of the, 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 the guys in, in the projects that have in, that's inspired me, um, and I told you this on the phone, is Non-League America and Steve Bailey and the work that they, they've done to cover the sport at multiple levels beyond just – what you might find at ESPN or Fox. They're, they're really, you know, bringing some really cool stories. How important is storytelling and highlighting stories and telling these stories and sharing these stories uh, throughout the, the landscape of American soccer important to building our culture, reshaping our culture, and, and ultimately getting us into a better system? Um, I think this all goes back to connectivity, whether that's, you know, just connecting all the leagues or just connecting people. The way that you connect to people is by telling stories because you say a story and then someone else goes, oh yeah, like I also had the same experience and you feel a community growing because you're relating to somebody else. And personally with the non-league America, the, uh, I connected especially to the Vietnamese one because my family is from Vietnam. And so it was just super cool to see that. Do I know any of those people? No, I don't. But I felt connected to them regardless because they were, you know, playing soccer and we also have, you know, same nationality basically. And it's just connecting people and feeling like a place of community and home. And I think soccer and even really any sport that's what it does it just creates a home for people speaking of that vietnamese story that non-league america put out which is which is a really cool story if you haven't had a moment to check that out and you're watching this interview and um i, I definitely highly recommend checking out non-league america their documentary series and their stories that they put out some really good work um, and, uh, and Steve's been on the show. He's a friend of the show and, and I appreciate his work. And, and, and this story in particular, I found to be really a, a really cool story. Um, and one of the things that I saw, and I, I'm, and I want to ask this, this question of you is you have this culture that like, we're going to do our thing. It doesn't matter really what's going on. Like we're going to do our thing, but 
if we had a connected system, how much does that thing that they're doing right now that's just, you know, where it is, how it is, how much could that thing grow and, and build and really like be able to connect to you and, and others on a bigger scale than just, oh, that was a nice story. But like, it becomes like something like, oh, I love those guys, you know, and that, like it just kind of, you know what I'm saying? So like when you saw the story and, and you, and you enter and, 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 and were inspired by it, you know, what, what kind of, what did that do for you? Like as a soccer player, as a soccer fan, as a soccer coach and seeing that story, how did that connect with you? Um, I don't know. It was really filled with hope, I guess. I know, you know, California has a huge Asian population. I've also been down to Texas, uh, Dallas, and that was a huge Asian culture. And it's insane because I didn't even know that there was a huge Asian culture in Texas. And so I think if we were actually able to connect, then you're just able to connect all of these, you know, groups, whether it's, you know, Asians or Hispanics or any of that, you're connecting all of these groups and creating just one big community and story and you get to connect with people and have one-on-one -on -one conversations and I think that's really helpful for growing the sport and also just growing the community in general. I think it's important that we get to a, a mentality uh, with American soccer, especially with this federation, that we don't have to force exactly what you look like and what you do. We, we create a system that allows you to shape that for yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. So then you could have, um, you know, an ethnic club that's formed and, and that's part of its identity, right? Like in Chicago, there are some deep rooted Polish clubs in Chicago that's part of the, the the soccer landscape there. Matter of fact, um, we, we were hosted at one of these clubs um, in, in January of 2018 during Eric's uh, run for president. And we did a, 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 a live streamed event from this Polish football club, Polish soccer club. They had a clubhouse and everything. It was, it was, it was awesome. Um, and, and to see a, a system that encourages that, you know, it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your background. You build your club that, that identifies with your people and the way that you want to build it. So it might be, you know, a club that's like, you know, primarily Latino or primarily Vietnamese or primarily Polish. That, that, that's cool. That's your thing. You do what you do you, right. Mm -hmm. But let's create a system that allows you to do you, you may, you know, you may start there, but as you grow and as you build, it may morph, it may, you know, change its shape, who knows. But I, I think this top-down control of what a club can be and where it can come from and what it should look like, uh, you know, needs to get thrown out. And I think we need to be more open-minded, more welcoming to say, hey, here are the slots, right, in the system. Here are the, here are the places where, where teams can play. And you, you do you and figure out how to get there, right? And, 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 and allow that pathway for a club to, to, to be there so that when a non-League America is doing a story about, you know, these Vietnamese uh, teams playing and, and chasing dreams and, and doing what they're doing, all of a sudden, like, that gets welcomed into the American soccer landscape and it's it's a different conversation at that point it's a different landscape it's a different experience for people and uh, and I think it I think that would be another piece that would really go a long way to shaping our American you know soccer culture as well um, so you know I, I I loved what you you wrote and I'm, I'm really uh, happy to see that there there are people that are are seeing what could be not just the problems that are, but what could be uh, in the future for American soccer. That's, that excites me. That's, that's why I do what I do every day is I hope more and more people do that. And, uh, and I, I'm really happy to have you on to, to talk about that. How can people connect with you, follow your work and, and read more of your articles uh, for Vendetta? Um, 
Honestly, following my Twitter would be the best way. Uh, it's at SL Leesman. Um, I promote all of my stuff for Vendetta, even going to the vendettasportsmedia.com website would also work. They, there's a lot of other great work. Um, Gavin also does a lot of soccer. He has one on the site about non-league America specifically. So um, yeah, I think that'd be the best way. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, great article. Keep up the great work. We appreciate it. And we look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks for, for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them, it changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for watching the show. As always, thanks to Serenity for coming on the show today. We appreciate it. As always, you can watch at danielorbin.com forward slash watch. We'll see you again tomorrow.